What's going on, travel family and adventurers near and far? Welcome to Point Noir, home of the Point Noir podcast, where we equip men of color to discover their full potential through travel. As always, I'm your host, Jerry the Third, aka Kimono Jack. You're joining us right now for the 70th session of the Point Noir podcast. What's up, y'all? Hope you're having an amazing week. I know this session is being released on a Wednesday and not a Tuesday. Listen, I'm out traveling on the East Coast in the DMV area doing some stuff that's going to be really important that I'll be sharing with all y'all very soon. But uh, when I'm on the road, the show's on the road. So apologies for the delay. But listen, today's guest is going to make it up tenfold. And not only are you going to listen to this guest for this session, but also next week's session, because we had such a long session, I broke it up into two sessions. Let me say the word session one more time, just in case you forgot what it sounded like. Session. All right. So that all being said, if you love this session, if you love this platform and you'd like to show support for the show, listen, it doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do is like one of our posts on social media, share it with a friend, share the podcast with someone that you care about and is interested in these amazing travel stories featuring these amazing men of color. Listen, we have over 70 of these sessions so far. So, hey, I'm sure there's one they are going to love and they'll appreciate you for it. So with that all being said, without further delay or ado, let's introduce today's special guest. Joining us today at The Point as our special guest for the first of this two-part installation is Mr. Dexter Thomas. Make sure you check him out online on Instagram and Twitter, at DexDigi. Check out his personal website, whatupdex.com. And listen, y'all, I'm super excited to share his story and his perspective with you all. I first came across his content because he not only is a published and accomplished writer, but he is a reporter with Vice News Media on HBO. And to see a black man rocking a clean high top fade with glasses on that was speaking fluent Japanese, and in some cases, Mandarin, I was like, yo, I have to learn more about this guy and his story. And he graciously accepted my invitation to be on the platform Y'all, this session is so amazing. We had to break it up into two parts. You already know this, but as soon as you start listening, you will clearly understand why. Dexter is a multi-hyphenate, skilled and knowledgeable in so many different areas, but his ability to draw a straight line of consistency and coherence through all of his experiences is great and it's really what he's sharing here now. We talk about career advice, we talk about anime, we talk about hip-hop Japanese hip-hop there's so much cool stuff in here and I promise you it will force you to expand your perspective in ways that you didn't even think you needed today so as always let's do our three-step drill step number one pour yourself I suggest the most refreshing beverage of choice you can find right now you know make it a double make it a double you'll need it step two find the comfiest corner on the coziest couch that you can and step three as always Sit back, relax, and enjoy another amazing session from us here at the Point Noir Podcast. I'll see you on the flip side. Yo, what's going on, Dexter? Thanks for joining me today at the Point. How you feeling, fam? I'm all right, man. I'm all right. It's uh, it's cloudy here in Santa Monica, unfortunately, but uh, you know, I'm pushing through, so I'm all good. Got you. We're gonna uh, send good vibes all the way to the West Coast. I stay in Dallas, so I mean. You know, there's a little bit of a time distance. I think we do some magic for that for you. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Awesome, man. Well, dude, I'm super excited to be speaking with you today. Uh, I first heard about you through the internet because I spent an obnoxious amount of time on YouTube. And I'm like, yo, 
Who's this black dude with the glasses and the flat top speaking Chinese and Japanese on Vice? I was like, <laughs> what? Is anybody else seeing this shit right now? Um, and so I started following your pieces, started following you on social media, learning more about you and all the awesome work you're doing. And I was like, yo, I got to get him on the show. So you even taking the time that I appreciate so much because you're another like professional journal. I'm a amateur journalist. Like you are the real deal. This should be your show in some ways. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about that, man, but I mean, you know, we're, we're all, we're all running the same direction. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good to talk to you, dude. I love it, man. Well, dude, let's get straight into it. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, introduce yourself and tell us how you got into adventuring because you've done a hell of a lot of it. Woo. Uh, there's a lot. Where, where should I start? There's what, uh, what, what part well, of it are you interested in? Cause we, th- I could, I could come at this from a lot of different angles. So let's frame it this way, because we're th- doing some things a little bit differently with the show. Start with your origin story as an adventurer. Like, I'm very keen on my origin story. What's your origin story? Like a superhero origin story. What mm. was that journey like that sold you on, you know, adding travel and culture and perspective to being an element of, you know, your life? Okay. Yeah. So I'm from San Bernardino, California, pretty much born and raised. And if you're from San Bernardino, you generally don't leave. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that, but you generally don't leave. You stay there, maybe you move to a neighboring city, but you don't go too far. I think I figured out, I think I figured that was going to be me. And it, it never occurred to me that there was going to be anything other than that for me. Just, you know, that's the environment. But things changed as for me as they often do in a really unexpected way. So basically, I can pinpoint where things changed for me. And it was on the bus one day. There was a kid who I think was a year younger than me who came onto the bus and he had this sheet of paper and he was looking at it. And I think I looked over the back of the seat and I said, yo, I remember his name, Caleb, Caleb Martinez, man, if you're out there, hit me up because <laughs> I haven't heard from you in a long time. But this dude changed my life. No joke. Basically, he had this sheet of paper that had uh, I asked him what it is. And he says, oh, this is the Japanese alphabet. That's how he phrased it. Right. I never seen yeah. Japanese. I didn't you know, I, I had nothing to do with this. And so it always and he kind of explains how it works. So I think his older brother was in the Navy or something like that and had a Japanese girlfriend or something like that. She was trying to teach him Japanese. It was something like that. And she had written down the the basic characters, right? So if you know anything about Japanese, there's there's three character systems and there's two mm-hmm. that are kind of the simple ones, which are hiragana, katakana. She'd written those out for him and he just had this on a sheet of paper and he's kind of telling me, oh, this is how you pronounce this, this is how you pronounce that. And I'm looking at this and I had just started... St- learning Spanish. So I'm in high school. This would be my second year in high school. And I had really just gotten used to the concept of a foreign language, right? Th- there's right. been Spanish around me all my life because I live in San Bernardino. And I mean, the, the city name is, is, is Spanish. All my, you know, a lot of my friends spoke Spanish, but it just felt like part of the environment. It wasn't, I didn't really think about it as, oh, here's a language that I don't speak. And it just gotten used to, I just gotten used to this idea of, oh, there's another language out there. And if you talk in it, people don't understand what you're saying. And that was kind of interesting mm. to me. And so now here's this dude who's got this piece of paper with a bunch of scribbles all over it. And I'm just, yo, make me a photocopy of that. So he makes me a photocopy the next day. He comes back with it. I take it home and I just make flashcards. I don't know why I did this, honestly, but I did. I made flashcards of both sets and I actually learned them in the wrong order. If you know anything about Japanese, you, you should learn hiragana first. I learned katsukana first because I thought it was e- it looked easier, it looked mm-hmm. cooler. And yeah, so all of a sudden, I have learned this kind of code alphabet that I can't do anything with. 
And <laughs> then at some point I say, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should learn Japanese. I don't know. Spanish was getting kind of boring because I was doing well in that little class that I was in. Uh, you know, I, I did fairly well in school. It, that didn't mean I was dope at Spanish or anything. Right. That just meant I was doing well in tests. I'm getting A's. So I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm good. Big difference. Yeah, it's huge a, difference. Massive difference. I would find this out later. Massive <laughs> difference. So anyway, uh, speed, to speed it up a bit, I buy a couple books on eBay, uh, you know, some old books. And I, I happen to be reading one day uh, at the side of a soccer field because I played soccer. I'm just reading this. And this lady comes up to me and says, hey, is that Japanese? And I say, yes, it is. She says, do you want to go to Japan? I just look at her and I say, what? <laughs> I, yeah. So it turns out that San Bernardino and Tachikawa, Japan, uh, Tachikawa is, is kind of a, a suburb, I guess, outside of Tokyo, have the sister city mm-hmm. relationship because both, oh, both shit. cities had uh, Air Force bases. So this, the one in San Bernardino shut okay. down a long time ago, which is a large reason why people don't really go there anymore. And, and Tachikawa also shut down uh for other reasons and so they had this sister city relationship going back you know a few decades and so there was this program where essentially you can go they choose four high school students from san bernardino four high school students from tachikawa you go there for a month and then they and stay with a family and then you have a host brother sister who comes and stays with you so she's telling me about this and i'm just it doesn't really sound realistic I don't really think it's going to work, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll just, I'll just put it this way. So I applied and, and I got in and I was kind of shocked, honestly, that I got in and I'll put it this way. I don't think there were any black kids who went there before me. I'm not sure if any, I hope somebody has, <laughs> I hope I'm not the last black kid. I didn't do anything wrong. So I hope I'm not the last <laughs> black kid who went, but you know, this wasn't a thing that I thought was, I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that this would happen. But anyway, so I applied you right. go through this process, you know, they look at your grades, they talk to you or whatever. And, and I'm, I made it in somehow I went and it was me, it was three other kids. We went, I stayed at this, uh, this other kid, my age's house for a month. We didn't have to know any Japanese. So me, me knowing a little bit, just, I just happened to be, I could say, Hey, I can write my name. I don't know any Japanese at this point. You know, I can say, I want to go to the store, you know, real, 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 real basic stuff. Right. I can write my name. Uh, that's really about it. But I go there. I, I'm tr- I'm trying to describe this. Basically, people are really nice to me. People are really nice right. to me, and I kind of have this response where it's like this Pavlovian response. You know what I mean? Where people are nice to me, and oh, if I go to this place, it's full of people who are cool to me, <laughs> and so I should Ooh, keep yeah. doing this. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really the only reason. So to kind of wrap it all up, basically, like I said, I this kid shows me this piece of paper with the with you know this alphabet on it i learned it just because i think it's fun it, it seems interesting and then i managed to go to japan and that was really it that was my first time going abroad i was 16 i never even thought of going abroad but after that it just seemed like well shoot if i can do this now i guess i could just keep doing it yeah mm. and so now i get a, you know this is a question i get a lot is how did you why did you decide to pick up Japanese? How did you get interested in it? Honestly, it was because of that sheet of paper that that kid showed me. It could have been anything else. If it would have been Arabic, I would be in a different region of the world right now. If it would have been, right. honestly, anything else, it, it didn't matter. It was strictly because of that chance 
encounter, honestly. And then me just something in me saying, I, I don't understand this and I don't like that I don't understand this. And so I want to know more about it. And that was really it. I love that. I don't like that I don't understand this. So make a photocopy, <laughs> yeah. Caleb. Like I mean the way he described it, it was just, oh, this seems easy. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is like a decoder ring that you get in a cereal box. You know what I mean? It's it's just, oh, A is this letter and B yeah. is that. This is easy. Turns out it's not that easy, but it seemed cool. And and that was it. So I want to dive in on on just almost an obtuse angle, just something out of the blue. It's so interesting that so high school, a very important like developmental time. You were already learning another language. You just see this stuff, but you mentioned a decoder ring. You mentioned, I don't understand this. Like, I feel like already at 16, you kind of had a disposition and I'm I'm curious where it came from. Like, uh, were you into comic books? Were you into superheroes? Was there almost a, a fantasy side of your mind that you wanted to see manifest in your real experience, even at that age? No, honestly. Um, I mean, so like I was saying, I, a lot of people when you know, Japanese people ask me this too. Uh, you know, I get the common questions, right? Oh, are you, are you, were you into anime? Uh, were you into, you know, mm-hmm. J-pop or whatever? And honestly, the answer is no. Because people ask yeah. me if I'm interested in Japanese. Yo, what, what do you like about Japanese culture? I don't. I, I honestly, <laughs> I don't care, man. I, was, I don't. Japanese food is I, right. honestly, it's okay. Anime, I mean, th- obviously, there's anime that I like, but. That wasn't my entry point. That came way after. I played video games like every other kid, wow. you know, my age. But I didn't. Th- you got to remember, this is at a time when Japanese video game companies were actively hiding the fact that their product was Japanese. They were trying to de-Japanify it, if that's a word, as much as possible. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody knew at this point that Power Rangers was actually a Japanese television show, and then all the ac- action sequences. Right. It was Japanese dudes in those costumes. And then they just filmed, you know, Americans for the drama sequence. Nobody knew that because they were trying to hide that because that at that point, it wasn't cool. Wow. And so I had zero interest in Japanese culture. Zero interest. Um, OK. I didn't know any Japanese. I knew one Japanese person. I knew one Japanese person. In my head, he was black. It, it, it wasn't even it wasn't even a, a factor for me. But yeah, it was really just. OK. It was honestly just a curiosity about something that I hadn't seen before. That was it. Wow. That's powerful, man. And um, I mean, anime has been a huge hook, especially for kids growing up in the 90s. You see, I mean, there's almost this rise of the black nerd, the blurred, where now, you know, it's cool to be the Urkel or the, the kid with glasses that nerds out on stuff like now that's fly. Like think of Childish Gambino or I even think of someone like yourself, like a a multi hyphenate who is well-educated and happens to wear glasses, <laughs> but like that has an appeal now that did not fucking exist in the nineties. Yeah. With Yo, the culture, I mean, we could, you know, we could get into, I mean, we um, could save this for later. Mm-hmm. We could get into it on black kids and anime. Cause that, that is a whole, a whole conversation that I find really fascinating. The black creators now, the yeah. ability to find them, the cosplayers, yeah. we, we might tap into that, but that's interesting that you, you had an appeal for it. Uh, you know, when I think of my experience, uh, you probably don't know this, but I was a, a D1 scholarship track and field athlete. And the only reason I did track and field is because at some point when I was a kid, I sat down, I was like, shit, if I ever wanted to become a superhero, you know, what kind of skills <laughs> and abilities would I need? I was like, well, shit, if I was a high jumper, you know, the average fence in a residential home is six feet tall. Like I high jump six one. I was like, cool, cool, cool. I'm making this Batman shit. And like still today with the podcast, man, you see, you know, yeah. of one piece, if you don't watch it. 
Yeah, like for me, I'm literally building a pirate ship and a pirate crew and we're pulling up to your front doorstep. You know, like that's how I visualize things. So that's a part of like just mm. my psychology, the way I my think my thought process. So that's that's why I asked you the question because I was like, well, maybe he's got something like maybe he just wants to be a low key superhero. That's like you know what shit. that came afterwards. Know. That came afterwards for me. It's something that kind of ga- became. But this sounds weird. But one of the, the thing that became kind of a guiding principle for me later. So, just to back up, I went to Japan once in high school. As I said, it, it was there for a month, and it was really just sensory overload, just experience. Right after that point, I decided. Oh, well, yeah. you know, maybe I should try to go back because again, the, the whole reason I'm trying to go back is because I had such a positive experience there. So, you know, um, I mm-hmm. applied to, I went to college. I went to UC Riverside. I applied for scholarships to go there. Uh, it never quite worked out. Uh, well, basically I, I applied to study abroad three times, failed each time. Yeah. I finally got what? it the fourth time. I don't know if they were sick of me or what, but I eventually got it. And I went to Japan from 2008 to 2010 on a scholarship called uh, the Momokagakusho Scholarship. And so basically, it's you go there after you've actually graduated. And so the idea is you have two years to get your stuff together and get yourself into a Japanese graduate school. If you can get yourself into a graduate school, then they will pay for your tuition at graduate school and they will give you a stipend. So you, you get a two year, you get two years. You essentially kind of belong to a, a, a university as a research student, and they pay you a stipend. It's a pretty decent stipend, you know, enough to live on, definitely. And you have two years. And Japanese taxpayers are right. paying this, by the way. This isn't American money. This is Japanese government. And so shout out to the Japanese j- taxpayers. Okay. But you, so you have two years to get yeah. there. So when I get there, I still don't know any Japanese because I hadn't really taken it seriously at all, all through college. Well, all the program college? wasn't how do I say this diplomatically? Um it was it wasn't that rigorous, just to be straight up about it. I mean, I so at this point I've taught Japanese. Okay. I taught okay. at graduate school. This is much later. I, I taught once. I taught uh Japanese at Cornell. And the way they do it is day one, you're speaking Japanese. I never spoke one word mm-hmm. of English to those kids ever. If they caught me in the hallway and I said something in English, they were shocked because they'd never heard me speak English. They, I mean, I'm sure they figured I could. But I never spoke English to them. I only spoke Japanese to them because that was the way the system works. But at UC Riverside, wow. it wasn't it wasn't developed that far yet. And so the level, it just wasn't that high. That's just what it was. So I get to Tokyo and I don't really speak Japanese that well. One of my first friends that I made, he was this rapper. And I was trying to talk to him and he was telling me, dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be straight with you. Your Japanese sucks. And I said, all right, what should I do? And he says, well, you should try, <laughs> you know, just basically be a kid again. And he said, you should watch what we watched mm-hmm. yeah. when we were, you know, we were kids. He told me, yeah. so there's a long way to getting to, I watched Dragon Ball. So I knew Dragon Ball Z. Americans, we, we got Dragon Ball Z, right? And so if you're not familiar with it, that's the, that's the part of Dragon Ball where basically by the second episode, people, dudes are just powering up and beating each other in the head, right? And throwing, you know, Kamehameha's at people, right? But the OG, the original, is when Goku is a kid. Yep, and it's wild. Y'all, if y'all haven't watched Dragon Ball and you're Dragon Ball Z fans, you need to watch Dragon Ball um, yeah. subbed and in Japanese. Cause yeah. So it I got went, censored when it came to the States. This yo, shit is wild. I mean, there's all that, too. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I went all the way back, and I started at the beginning. I just watched it, and <laughs> I realized, yo, Goku is amazing. 
Goku's what I love about Goku is yeah. he sees somebody who's stronger than him and he's happy about it. He doesn't mm-hmm. get mad, he doesn't get sad, he doesn't get jealous. He's yo, there's somebody out right. there who could beat me. If if I train hard enough, I could maybe I could beat him. And that would mean I'm stronger than him. And then maybe there's other stronger people. I I can right. keep he doesn't care when when Bulma comes to him and she's looking for the Dragon Balls. He doesn't care. He don't know what a Dragon Ball is. He don't know if it's food. He don't know what it is. But he figures out. Wait a second. If I go outside of these hills, there's more stuff to experience, and I I could just keep getting stronger. He don't even know what the limit is. But that's what he likes. And I'm watching this, and you know, I'm kind of sort of half understanding it. But I'm just, yo, this is amazing. I want to be like this yeah. guy. <laughs> this is my role model i'm not even kidding is that that <laughs> goku is no joke i'm not kidding dead serious one of my role models so i i haven't watched you know i haven't watched gt i haven't watched all the new stuff i don't really care about it but the og goku you know re- really up through the z saga because he's he essentially he doesn't really change but that part of him that part of his mm-hmm. personality i i really really respect i love it Wow. Like, I, first off, I am so grateful and appreciative of your transparency on that, because I think that's something that is either difficult for people to admit publicly, but even kind of scary to hone in on. Like, deadass, I have three role models in life. They are Jerry Mouse, Sonic the Hedgehog, wow. and okay, my no, father. No, hold on. That's so, not my only role model. My dad is definitely like, one, too. But in, I'm just going to I will happily say publicly anytime <laughs> that anybody wants to hear. Yes, Goku. Hundred percent, yeah. But that's a huge deal, and I think that it it kind of activates a different part of your brain. Where even when you're not adventuring, you just kind of have this almost this fictional character with these ideals and this strong set of values that acts on it. That's kind of like your north star, like someone that influences you. And I think that's that's helped me charge forward into unknown situations and yeah. kind of have some level of confidence, even though it was fictional. You know, same reason why people will watch like John Wick or. Uh, some other movie and be like, oh yeah, I want to be like 007 or some shit like that. Like it's the same thing. Shit works for cartoons too. Like I love the fact that you can hone in and own that fact. And also Goku is the mascot for the 2020 (laughs) Olympics. So, you know, fuck what you heard, man. That's facts. Goku. (laughs) He's obviously influential. And there's such a power, I think, in in being willing to kind of embody those characteristics in the ways that you can. So how did you proceed after that point? And how do you think that's taking you to where you are now? Because you've done so much between not being able to speak English yeah. or speak um, Japanese to where yeah, you are right so now. Yeah, so basically I was there from, like I said, I was in Tokyo from 08 to 2010. So basically the the program that I went on, you have, you're working on a research project. My research project was, was Japanese hip hop. Okay. I figured out a way to, I wanted to go back. I figured out a way to pitch it in a way that, and this is a skill that, you know, for better or for worse needs to be learned pitch something in a way that is palatable to the people who are holding the check and i think that's what happens on my fourth try i figure that out so i'm there studying japanese hip-hop you know really and by studying japanese hip-hop i basically mean i'm just hanging out with rappers and skaters and listening to a lot of rap music going to a lot of shows occasionally participating in those shows uh djing and stuff like that and, and reading a lot reading a lot playing video games basically i i taught myself japanese okay. essentially there were classes I, at one Dope. point, I, you know, kind of like Japanese as a second language classes, I ended up dropping out of those. I just stopped going to class. So somewhere at Waseda, there is a file cabinet with 
records of somebody named Dexter Thomas with just F's across the board. Because uh, I, I just quit going to class because I was just, you know what, this this isn't working. This isn't for me. So I started doing my own. That ended up working out a little bit better. Around 2010, you know, time comes to apply for a Japanese graduate school. I just couldn't find a program that I wanted to be in. Somebody told me about this school called Cornell, which I had never heard of. And it is in a city called Ithaca, which I had also never heard of. I thought that was in Greece. And anyway, I applied. And I mean, it turns out it's an Ivy League school. I, I had no right. idea. And I applied. I got in. And, you know, I did the grad school thing for a while, for five years until, you know, I ended up kind of shifting paths and doing doing this journalism thing. Yeah, there's a lot in there. It's kind of complicated, but that's that's the outline. I'm with it, bro. In the outline, because I don't think enough people are aware that this is like like you can actually live this like this is real facts you're a real person <laughs> like you have all this in your story and i'm even thinking right now okay how do we unpack it but the outline's important so people are just like oh, what the fuck like holy shit who is this guy let's talk about some of the journalism and then i think i want to flip back to culture sure yeah so you know what fuck all that let's start from the basics perspective man how did these experiences alter your perspective? Because I think travel, I think perspective is one of the most powerful things you can mm. latch onto when you do get outside of your city even, or outside of your state. Like you hadn't heard of Ithaca and I'm surprised because I know of you now, <laughs> but I'm like, damn, he was really deep in yeah. San Bernardino. Like that's a specific, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, a, it's an Ivy League school, but right. the way, I grew up on the East Coast. So maybe that was more accessible to me. So even that little shift right there, I'm grateful for, because I'm like, wow, you can live so far in California or in these certain pockets that like, it just doesn't come up, which is normal. Because at some level, like, yeah, it's another. It's just another school. It's just another institution. Yeah. So, did you start noticing your perspective shift even as early as sixteen in that first month long experience, or was there another moment where you like, wait a second, I'm actually seeing things differently? Actually, you know what? Hold on. I think. Uh, yeah, I was. I was fifteen, pushing sixteen. But I can remember at one point realizing that I was American, mm. and that was a weird moment. I, I I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like it, somebody's taking picture. And I'm I'm in Japan at this point, and, and somebody says something like, "Okay, the Japanese kids stand here, the Americans stand there," and the rest of the kids would, you know, they go to walk over to where they're standing, and I'm just, "Oh shoot, that's me." They're talking about me. I'd never I'd never been called American in my life, you know what I mean? And it it hadn't occurred to me, you know, that's what it says in my passport, but I just never that wasn't really part of my identity, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. Also worth noting that. This is immediately pre 9-11. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Immediately. I'm not saying that that changed, but I'm just saying that, you know, this is, this, this is kind of the environment. So it, it, it kind of made me uncomfortable because I didn't think of myself as American. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, if, if you ask somebody to describe themselves, you know what I mean? You've, you've probably seen some version of this, but when you ask somebody to describe themselves, any kind of minority will usually start there. Right. So if you have a big room of people and you just you just tell every and I've done this in classrooms, you tell people, write down something about yourself. You'll notice that the white people in the room will not write down white, but the black people will write down black. Sure. Or Chicano or Asian American, whatever. They'll write that down. Men usually won't write men, but women will often write women. Mm-hmm. 
because they're made aware of that all the time. Right. And so I realized that, oh, there's parts of me, at least parts of how people perceive me that I'm not even aware of. And at this point, you know, I thought I was pretty aware, but I realized, oh, actually I'm not. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was, it was small, but I still kind of remember that being, oh, huh. There, there's things about the world that I don't, or about how other people perceive the world that I'm not even familiar with when they look at me. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting that that was one of the first kind of peaks of insight that you had because, you know, you kind of start to open that that jar a little bit. And I'm sure the realization only exploded later because there's so much that comes with being born in this country that we are blissfully unaware of in this country. Yeah. Um, and like when I, I lived in Paris, France as an undocumented immigrant for a year and a half. And I realized mm-hmm. with my French friends, like to y'all, I'm an American cowboy. Like I'm a wild dude to y'all. Cause this is not, <laughs> this is not in your makeup. This is not in your DNA. You have no examples of this. This is some American ass shit. But the interesting thing was American having a blue passport came before being black. Yeah that caused me to, to have another, just like you mentioned, like we kind of, you know, identify ourselves within a context to our um, highest level of, I don't want to say suppression, we'll say regulation to, to where people start to notice in Japan being a very homogenous society um, and feeling certain way towards uh, outsiders historically. Um, I'm sure that that gave you things to think about for years to come. I'll say one thing about the homogenous thing. Japan is not as homogenous as, as some may think. Um, okay. th- this, this is a whole whole sidebar way too much of a sidebar let's go teach me something bro i'm here for it sure so japan was not japan did not think of itself as homogenous until quite recently ever Hmm. that is an american introduction really yeah so i'm I'm gonna play real fast and loose with facts here not not with facts i'm gonna play real fast and loose with details okay but in if you look at what imperial japan was doing before you know before world war ii and then up and through it Mm -hmm. what japan was doing was creating what they considered essentially a multi-ethnic empire okay and so the idea is now japan is obviously doing terrible things they're invading other countries and Mm -hmm. they're doing so very violently but it was fundamentally different from other kinds of colonialism and it was still colonial it was colonialism but it was fundamentally different from other kinds of colonialism in that when they invaded your area you became japanese Hmm. which is different from you have we are your overlords and you are a completely separate entity entirely beneath us now Functionally, you still ended up being beneath a Japanese person. That that still happened. Sure, sure. Because that that's just how it happened. But for example, um, intermarriage was encouraged between Japanese and non-Japanese. Yeah, because the thing was, th- there's no such thing as non-Japanese because everybody's Japanese. Mm. I mean, Okinawa is not part of Japan. It was not part of Japan. They invaded Okinawa. That's a whole other wow. kingdom. It's called the Ryukyu Kingdom for a reason. It's an entirely different place. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know that that history is complicated too but that was again i mean this is getting into my research and all this other sort of thing but japan was very aware that on some levels they were doing the talk that america was talking they were actually doing Hmm. and they knew that that would make america very nervous because 
you know, the American military was still segregated. Right. So when Japan lost the war and America came in, the idea that, oh, you were all, you know, you're homogenous, you're the same people. That was that was actually sort of a new idea that, oh, you're everybody here's the same. You're all one race and all that sort of thing. That's that wasn't really in the game plan. It certainly wasn't in the game plan in Japan before that. So that idea is actually kind of an American introduced phenomenon. Wow. And that's that's what I'll say about that. So the thing is, now a lot of people in Japan buy into that. Ah, uh, okay. And then of course that affects policy. I'm I'm not saying that if you ask a Japanese person, they won't say that. They will 100% say, oh yeah, we're all the same. We're all homogenous. That's not true because I've been there. <laughs> and right. there's all sorts. Of, I mean, you know, there's, there is some ethnic diversity. There's not a ton. It's growing a bit. Right. But, you know, the idea that everybody is exactly the same, you know, even if you want to talk class, mm-hmm. you know, there's projects in Japan, 100%. There are unmentionables in Japan. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole lot going on there. But... Some of those myths, you know, the 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 single minority, the sorry, the uh, the the one race myth or whatever. There's a word for it in Japanese. I'm forgetting the English one. Um, that people in Japan absolutely buy, and a lot of people in Japan buy into it. But it's good to keep in mind sometimes that that's actually a pretty recent phenomenon. Kind of like the model minority myth in the United States. You know, that is also a pretty recent phenomenon. Right, right. To have some context. Yeah. And in my modern, my modern, uh, let's say, interpretation of Japan. Um, th- there's a whole channel on YouTube called The Black Experience Japan. I listen to their stories and people, especially black Americans, talk about the difficulty integrating into the culture. So maybe I wasn't specific enough with the homogenous statement, but I've even heard for Africans, it's it's difficult for them to integrate, get a certain level of jobs, kind of reach a certain level of status in society that they're just kind of, that they tend to do these entry level jobs, if that. Is that still accurate? Uh yeah, I mean, I would I would guess I have I know of those videos. I haven't watched all of them unfortunately, so I, I can't speak too much to it. Okay, sure, sure. But, I haven't watched them all either. I mean, shout out to y'all, but you know, yeah. But I would guess that you know, I mean, it's it's people's experiences, so you know, of course. But you know, I mean, I get stopped and frisked in Japan more than I do in the states, and that's a fact. Wow. Um, and you know th- that that is a reality. That is one hundred percent a reality. Okay. Wow. <laughs> nice. We have we have circled an entire sandbar, my friend. This is a, <laughs> a celebratory moment. I, I didn't know. I, I really appreciate the firsthand experience. Japan has always been one of those countries I want to go to. And I didn't know that it was so deep in your experience. Again, I see you on YouTube and I'm just like, oh, and you know, he's learned like, I know how to teach myself a language. I'm like, okay, maybe he's just interested. Maybe he's an anime geek. Like, I know you do the music. I knew that your, I guess, dissertations about hip hop yeah. and Japan, right? Yes. How did that did that bring up any any revelations or different perspective about you know your own identity as as a man of color as a black man? I, I was forced to answer and you know ask a lot of questions when I was abroad, and you're mm-hmm. like in the culture. Like hip hop is the number one broadcasting marketing tool of the United States yeah. of our culture. Um, what's that journey been like? It's been interesting. Basically, I mean, first off, the way that I got into it, the way that I kind of came up with it was. Working at a radio station, college radio station, again at UC Riverside, and seeing that records would come in that are Japanese punk or Japanese indie rock or whatever, and people went, oh, yeah, that's cool because it's Japanese. And I didn't really think of Japan as cool. And yeah. you really didn't fuck with Japan. No, I just I <laughs> like didn't care. <laughs> I really, okay. it, was, it was just, it was another place that I liked 
but I don't know that I yeah. thought of it as automatically cool necessarily. You feel about Japan the way I feel about France. <laughs> where I'm just like, eh, it's all right. You know, if you like it, go back. But I probably thought it was cooler then. For me right now, honestly, Japan is just, it's another place. And there's things that I don't like about it. And there's things that mm-hmm. I like about it, just like the States. There's things that I love about the States and there's things that I really don't like. Right. And I think that's having a, a realistic relationship with somewhere you live. If you really love the place you're at, I have questions for you. You know what I mean? If you're right. in love, right. if you're right. just, I love everything about this place, I have serious questions to ask you because I find that strange. That's so real though. That's so Yeah, it real. doesn't matter if you were born or raised there or you've been there, you know, for, if you've spent any time there and you have any idea about the place, then there's some things that aren't going to jive with you. And that's just what it is. And that's fine. But I, I realize I'm working at this radio station. I realize, oh, there's not a lot of, I don't see any Japanese hip hop. I wonder if it even exists. You know, this is early, mid 2000s. There's not a whole lot of information on the internet about it yet. And so that's kind of how I even came up with an idea of how to, you know, to do this. Because I was already really into music, period. Hip hop being one of those genres. Right. But what I realized to really sum it up, uh, if I can, because I'm legit writing my dissertation, trying to finish up my dissertation right now, is that black people represent political struggle, I think, all over the world. Mm. And, and Japan is no exception to that. That is kind of co opted in certain ways in Japan. So I'm not particularly interested with, you know, cultural appropriation. I'll leave that conversation to other people because it's just, it's not very interesting to me, frankly. Gotcha. But politically, I'm I'm interested in how that works because I, I see in Japan, I see both the right and the left using often the same symbols just for different purposes. I didn't realize that when I was there yet, but as I started to really observe more, I started to see that and I found, okay, whoa, this is really interesting. But the music... Also, it just so happens, you know, so I have criticisms of, of the culture, just like of, of the hip hop scene, right? The hip hop culture, the hip hop scene, just like I have criticisms of, of the American hip hop scene. Right. But also like the American hip hop scene, a lot of the stuff's just good. And so, I mean, I listen to Japanese rap all the time because I like it. Makes sense. <laughs> you know, it, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to complain because something that I worked on for years, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, hey, how do you research? I'd sit around and listen to rap music. I mean. This is a pretty good gig. <laughs> that actually makes school kind of sound like it doesn't suck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the whole writing, the dissertation part, mm-hmm. but like, you know what? what? Like, no one was telling me at a career fair, you know what, Jerry? You could just listen to your favorite types of music and get college credit for it. Yeah. I mean, the downside is you just be trying to have fun and listen to something, and all of a sudden you hear something, it's just, okay, now you go into researcher mode. And so, you know, the clock never stops. That's That's the downside, but... All things considered, it's not too bad. It's not too shabby. You could be in dentistry school and really hate that. Yeah, exactly. So talk to me about you getting into interviewing because as a host of a podcast, like I think sitting in that host position forces you to to challenge perspective because you're listening to answers, you're you're looking at how people are reasoning and judging, and you also bring up cultural things as well. Like your pieces that I've seen uh, on Vice are like you ask some hard hitting <laughs> questions and sometimes in their own language. And I'm like, damn, like you talk to a variety, like a huge spectrum of people from VRs to uh, what was it? People with the kind of white monkey jobs in social media in China. Oh, geez. Tell me about your experience being a journalist. Sure. Yeah. So 
that again, this, this was something I did not plan. And that really started honestly from me blogging. I was just kind of honestly just writing think pieces and really just sort of wilding out. And I, I look back at some of it and some of it's all right. Some of it's just, yo, what? okay, this needs to be edited down to about half the length. A lot of these things don't make any sense. And I'm saying those were the days to do it, though, because today is not the day. To do it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if any day was the day to do it, but I mean, you know, the I, it's it's hard to get too mad about it because the think piece industrial complex, you know, I fed into that. You know, I, I benefited from it. Um, it. It was an interesting time. And there's still people doing the thing and it, it's cool. It's just it's not quite for me right now. But I got used to just from the fact that I was researching hip hop. What does that even mean? And so I got, you know, I, th I think I just kind of have a different perspective on a lot of things just because of my background. Right. But interviewing, I mean, with interviewing, what, what do you want to know? I mean, I could I could go on about it, but what, what specifically are you curious about? I'm curious about how you've continued to, you know, develop your identity and perspective, specifically, you know, kind of representing the only man of color I could think of to do these jobs. Like how has being in these positions mm. kind of change your, your posture, your positioning, maybe encouraged you to express a certain opinion or, you know, come from a certain angle. Like, yeah. what is that doing to how you see yourself? That's an interesting question. Um, like, mind you, you, and for all the best reasons, you look black as fuck. And it's <laughs> like, I sent you a, a question. I was like, how do you maintain a flat top on mm -hmm. the road? And you showed the clippers. You're like, yo, I got to cut yeah. my own hair. But like, you rep hard like you're not you're not blending in you are you and i love that about um what i've been able to see and how you represent yourself and it's so strong and i'm just curious how like how do you cultivate that strength and how do you bring it through in in these assignments wow yo so i i appreciate that um so i come from if i'm talking about my educational background right um mm -hmm. my mode of working thinking whatever uh you know I, i'm still a grad student and so in my head when people call me a journalist it's actually kind of strange because i if somebody walked in a room and said hey is there a journalist i need a journalist i don't know if i would turn around honestly because i it wouldn't it wouldn't occur <laughs> right. so, oh yeah that's me i've only been doing this for four and a half years journalism this is a sidebar journalism is not that hard honestly you you go you talk to somebody you mm. ask them a question and and they answer the question, and you leave. That's it. It's simple, but it's not easy. If that makes any sense, the the mechanics of it are very mm. simple. That's fair. It is not rocket science. It is not brain surgery. the The mechanics are things that everybody does every day, and it's not easy because you know emotionally, spiritually, uh, you know, in terms of intellectually, it, it it's not easy. But the mechanics are very simple. So I spent as a graduate student. I'm coming from kind of a cultural studies, media studies background, if I have a background, right? Right. And so I'm looking at every, I look at everything, everything as something that can be interpreted, whether that's a video, whether that's a scene in a video game, whether that's a book, you know, the way that people analyze literature or whatever. I analyze everything like people analyze literature, like that stuff that you hated to do in, in high school. I realize that I like doing that. But then also part of that is I realize that at some point you when you get far enough into that, you start to analyze not just the text, you start to analyze the writer. Mm. And then you start to look at, quote unquote, the media. You know what I mean? You start to say, okay, you know, mm, why are they telling this story in this way? Why are they writing it that way? Why are they referring to 
this person is, you know what I mean? Why, why are they doing this? Right. I started to realize that one thing that gets said often, I think, is, you know, oh, journalists should be neutral. I'm not sure. I don't really believe in neutrality. How is that even possible, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's not possible, but I think, and I, you hear a lot of people say this, neutrality, I don't think is, it's not possible. It's not feasible. And I don't know that it's actually desirable. I think transparency is good, right? but neutrality, it, it, th- there's no such thing, right? That's because of bias, just to catch everybody up. That's just inherent bias. Yeah. Is that why you're saying that? Of course. That? Okay, cool. Yes, of course. So I know that just by appearing on the screen, looking the way that I do, and by that, I mean the color of my skin, I'm going to be assumed to be quote unquote biased in a way that a white dude is not. Mm-hmm. Neutrality in general is the sole domain and privilege of the white straight male, you know, fill, fill in all the blanks, right? Right. That, that's, that's who is assumed to be neutral. The minute that a woman appears on screen, the minute that a queer person appears on screen, it's, it, it changes. Oh, this person must have some kind of agenda. No, they, they, they have an experience. They have a perspective, but that doesn't mean that their, their perspective is any less valid. Yeah. You see what I mean? And so I'm, as much as possible, I am just straightforward with people. You know, I, I already know that a person talking to me is going to have, you know, just like they have an opinion of anybody else. They're going to have an opinion about me. And I'm just, I try to be very straightforward and say, hey, here's what I think. I'd like to know what you think. And, that, and that's basically it. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but. <laughs> yeah. No, you are. But you're also providing a lot of context. So I appreciate you going through that because what you do, and if people, if y'all haven't seen him on Vice, check out YouTube. I don't even know if you can get Vice through it. I'm sure you can get it through a package, but like check out shit. Like he's interviewed Rachel Dolezal. He's done a bunch of work in China and Japan. Like it's really interesting. And like you do a really good job of saying literally what you just expressed. Here's my opinion. What do you think? Like you're in factories in China where people are testing AI software for the AI to train the AI. Right. You're like, hey, don't you think this is kind of abusive? And people are just like, (laughs) no, we really don't. And you're like, thank you for your time. And it's, but it leaves everybody, it, it gives the opinion that you do respect people's opinions, even though you have your own. And I actually wish I saw more of that. Like, I'm really glad that I get to see this in my small circle champion through the content that is produced with you in it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's, and again, I'm not the only one, uh, there's, you know, if if we're just talking correspondence, I mean, pretty much, you know, all of us really kind of have the same motivation or the same kind of way that we go about stuff um but yeah i don't, I don't know where to go with it there's there's a lot there there's a lot there <laughs> there's a ton in, in the back of my head i'm like shit we're gonna need a part three in the future <laughs> um so dexter are you familiar with the black travel movement and all the movement with you in the media like has that crossed your radar or come across your desk or you know timeline it has some it has some i mean I, you know i've i've seen obviously um uh, familiar with your with your podcast uh i've seen a few others out there blogs and things like that accounts uh you know on twitter or whatnot uh not as much as i could be though okay that's fair and i mean listen i'm adjacent to it i consider the show to be travel adjacent the thing i'm most interested in is you know reasons why i'd love to see more of us especially men of color traveling the fact that you're not sure if you're the last person to be a part of the sister cities program which is a dope program yeah that's come up on the show before like 
I feel like it's such an opportunity for men of color to get outside themselves. And you're from California where there's a lot of culture, a lot of strong black culture, but also where, you know, somebody might not see the ocean because they're committed to their block. Like, yeah. What would you share that, you know, from your experience that travel has done for you in terms of getting a different sense of yourself that you know you wouldn't have developed if you had stayed in San Bernardino where most people don't leave? I'll be real with you, man. I can't even answer that question. Um, I would be a completely different person, honestly. If I had not left the country, I suppose it doesn't matter where I went. Uh, I just so happened to have gone to Japan. And then a little bit after that, I went to China. You learn, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn about, a lot about where you're from. If you want to understand where you're from, you have to leave. You have to leave. Preferably mm. live somewhere else, but you have to. Could you tell me more about that? Why do you have to, why can't you see it when you're inside of where you're from? It's, it's like the same way that you don't know what you look like unless you have a mirror. It's, mm. and this, this is not a, this is not a new statement. It's not an uncommon statement, but you really do not understand anything about where you are, where you're from, who you are until you leave. I would even say this. If you think you know something about black people and you haven't left the United States, you don't understand black people. You definitely don't understand black people in the United States. You do not understand African-Americans. If we want to use that word, you, you don't get it. You don't understand because you haven't left. Wow. You, you don't understand things like racism because you have one perspective. History is full of people who left went somewhere else, came back, and had a much better understanding of who they were, what other things were. Now, that's not to say, I mean, you know, we, we could go down the list. We could talk about W.E.B. Du Bois. We could talk about, you know I mean, uh, we, we could talk about anybody, honestly. That's not to say that that is the only purpose of going somewhere, that you, you just go to some other country and just, oh, let me just camp out somewhere and then, you know, use that to figure out who I am. That, that, that's not what I'm saying. You don't go somewhere and do your eat, pray, love thing. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's all to say that I've learned a lot. I think I have a much better understanding of, you know, I think I understand America better than, you know, somebody who hasn't left. And I, I would say that mm. for anybody. If you want to know anything about where you're from, and, you, you know, which is, it's, it's hard to use that as a recommendation because you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you need to know. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't occur to you right. that you're missing something if you've never been aware of that. You know what I'm saying? So it's hard to use that as a recommendation. Oh, this is why you should go because you'll understand yourself better. That's, I mean, okay. That, that, that's not really a... Well, I definitely agree. Yeah, it's, it, it's hard to use that as a, as a selling point, uh, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> tell me about it, fam. Like, t t tell me about it, bro. Like, it this is something that's on my mind perpetually. Because it's on my mind, the podcast is a manifestation. This conversation is a manifestation of that. But you're, you're so right. And I think that there's a, a thing that we don't realize. All the greats, any fucking great cultural leader, um, anyone that was leading a movement, they traveled. MLK, Malcolm X, Jack Johnson, uh, W.B. Du Bois, like they they left and they came back. Baldwin, yeah. James Baldwin, uh, oh my goodness, Nina Simone, like yeah. Angela, like people were, they had to get out. And um, you're right, it's a, it's a hard pitch to say, you know what, you have to get out to kind of realize your, 
your potential or realize what the fuck is going on when you live in a country where 60% of people don't have passports and, you know, access to that, having the time, having the finances to get really abroad, not just going down to the to Dominican Republic. I know we talk about them a lot on the show, <laughs> um, but like really getting out somewhere different. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a hard sell. Yeah. That, that's, that's a hard sell. <laughs> that's a hard sell. We, we are peddling the shit out of these Dell computers in 2019, but listen, bro. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's like, though, that's like telling somebody, yo, you know what? You should learn karate because you'll understand yourself better. That That's the reason that the real reason to learn a martial art is it's, it's development of the self, right? Mm. But no, people want to go kick somebody in the face. <laughs> That's why you sign up. Hopefully that was enough of a cliffhanger for you folks to come back next week and hear the rest of our discussion. Part two coming up next week. Thank you again, Dexter, for spending the time sharing the benefit of your knowledge with all of us. Y'all make sure you follow him online, Twitter and Instagram at DexDigi, his personal website, whatupdex.com. And if you go on YouTube, you know, this little site called YouTube and just type in Dexter Thomas Vice, you will see all of these amazing pieces he's done. And if you're really good at the internet, if you're really good with your Googles, you can even find a Medium article that he posted that includes so many of his writings about the intersection of Japanese culture and hip hop and the scene out there, which is really useful. So thanks again for publishing that. Folks, make sure you check it out. Y'all, this has been another great session. I am literally under a blanket fort to give you the best quality sound that I can while I'm on the road. But listen, I appreciate you all tuning in. Please share the show, the podcast with somebody. Hopefully it is adding tremendous value to your lives as you explore with these adventurers and learn from them firsthand, you know, what the mindset is that they've acquired, how much growth that they've seen in themselves and in those around them just by traveling the world. It's an amazing thing. Don't forget, we sponsor a passport for a man of color every single month. Shout out to Demetrius, who won the last passport of 2019. He just put his application in the mail. I shared that on Instagram. Proud of you, bro. Looking forward to you taking your first trip abroad. This is all we do, y'all every single week so with that all being said this is jerry the third aka kimono jack signing off take care y'all <laughs>